Welcome to Financial Crime Matters with Kieran Beer. I'm Kieran Beer, Chief Analyst and Director of Editorial Content for ACAMS. In this episode, I talk with Grant Rabin, Director of Financial Crime Legal at Coinbase, a large U.S. headquartered cryptocurrency exchange. Grant discusses the promise of blockchain, including cryptocurrencies and decentralized finance, while acknowledging that the digital asset industry needs to work with regulators to stem the use of these products in financial crime and money laundering. I hope you find the podcast informative and that you'll subscribe to Financial Crime Matters, either on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Here we go. Well, I'm excited to have today Grant Rabin, Director of Financial Crimes Legal at Coinbase. Grant, welcome. Thanks for having me, Karen. I don't need to say this, but I think Coinbase now is you know, certainly one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world and, and, and certainly the largest in the US. But you know what? This is your chance to correct me if I'm wrong in any of that initial introduction and description of Coinbase. Tell me a little bit about Coinbase, the kinds of crypto that you handle, how large it is, that kind of thing. The, the, give me the overview. Yeah, happy to. So obviously there are different metrics you can use to measure the the size of a of a cryptocurrency exchange or crypto platform, but generally speaking in the US, Coinbase is the largest and most trusted crypto exchange. We also operate internationally. Um, we have offices and services in Europe and in Asia. We offer a wide variety of products and services, so the core business currently is the retail and institutional exchanges where we provide access and custody of a wide variety of crypto assets. So not just Bitcoin and Ethereum, but a whole host of other crypto assets or crypto tokens. Um, we also provide payment services and a whole host of services and products that fall under this large category of Web3, which we can talk about. It's a very big business just a ton of interesting and innovative products and services that I learn about on a daily basis as part of my job. And we were the first crypto exchange to go public in the US. So we are a publicly traded company. So tell me then a little bit, I, I know you're a former prosecutor, a former federal prosecutor and director of financial crimes. What does that role entail? Can you talk a little bit about the overall effort that you oversee? Definitely. So I do a lot of different things in my job that I, I would have never expected prior to joining uh, the private sector. But one key role that, that my team plays is, is we serve as the legal advisor to the compliance organization for Coinbase. So there are day-to-day -day issues that come up. There are large-scale programmatic projects and, and other things that we work on jointly with compliance. And we provide the, the legal advice um, and counseling on, on all of those matters. In addition, we support uh, a global investigations team that we have at Coinbase that ensures that criminals are not able to use our platform and, and also to make sure that our customers are not victimized by external criminals. I also manage some other projects such as our travel rule solution, which is a whole other thing we can talk about, but Coinbase, has, along with other leading exchanges, has pioneered a privately led travel rule solution for crypto. My team also handles our liaisoning with Treasury, specifically FinCEN and OFAC on policy matters. And we also work with our policy organization to the extent there's new legislation related to AML and sanctions. If you could talk about the overlap between the kind of legal oversight that you have and the legal advice that you give 
and the nuts and bolts compliance effort that's in place to prevent financial crime? Yeah, so we have a big and sophisticated compliance organization within Coinbase. Uh, Melissa Strait is our CCO. And we also have a, a series of, of veterans from traditional finance who are part of our compliance organization. I'm just continually impressed with the level of sophistication and experience that they have. I believe Coinbase has one of, if not the most sophisticated and robust compliance programs among crypto exchanges globally. And so what I do on the legal side is, is ensure that the actions that we're taking on the compliance side meet our legal and regulatory requirements. And there's also a lot of informal crossover work where it's not something's not clearly legal, it's not clearly compliance, but really it's the, the skill set and backgrounds of both lawyers and compliance experts. It's helpful for us to be in the same room or to be on the same phone call to discuss how to deal with certain issues. And so that's kind of where my team fits in. It can be at times amorphous what we do because it's not just that we're sitting there receiving questions and answering things on the legal side. We're also constantly working on projects, trying to provide solutions to issues, push forward initiatives and things like that. So we're, we're pretty flexible, both on the compliance side and on the legal side on how we get things done. Uh, I think Coinbase still has a, a startup mentality, which I like. Everyone works really hard and everything is very fast paced. So because of that, we have to be pretty flexible in all of the roles that we play. Give me an idea of some of the issues that you face as a VASP, kind of what are maybe some of the policies and procedures that you have in place to address those issues? Yeah, well, you know, another huge area that I'm involved in and, and our compliance org also is on product advisory. So Coinbase has a lot of interesting cutting edge products, and we have to figure out how that fits in with the existing legal framework. Fortunately, in the United States, we have very good guidance that FinCEN has put forth uh, beginning in 2013. Uh, they were the first global regulator on the AML side to issue guidance related to cryptocurrency that really has laid the groundwork for global regulators on how they're going to address crypto. And then in 2019, FinCEN provided even clearer guidance on the, the whole host of products and services that can exist within crypto. So what we do is we analyze you know, those guidances and also the Bank Secrecy Act itself to figure out how we can ensure that new products and services are compliant uh, with that guidance. That's one big area that that we work on. And then, you know, like I said, we have initiatives like this travel rule project that's a cross-functional effort with both our legal org, our product organization, and our compliance organization, where we kind of jointly manage how that travel rule solution works. So Coinbase is the operator of that travel rule solution. It's called Trust, the Travel Rule Universal Solution Technology. We were able to work closely with FinCEN to allow the the private sector to solve a, a very difficult compliance question, which is how do you deal with travel compliance in crypto, where you have public blockchains as opposed to private ledgers, uh, where the information is automatically being transmitted. So that's just another example of the type of work that we do. And then, you know, like any compliance organization, um, there's a whole host of daily matters that come up. Questions about SAR filings. There's questions about our customer risk ratings. You know, any sort of standard compliance matter that that traditional financial institutions will come across, we also come across. Is it possible without giving away the secret sauce and everything to talk a little bit about how how do you solve the travel rule 
problem. As you said, all that information is on a traditional wire or something like that. How do you make that work with the blockchain? It's a great question and, and one that initially when then director Ken Blanco announced that the travel rule would apply to crypto in 2019, the industry got together and said, how do we solve for this problem? There's really two core challenges. One is, how do you know who your counterparty is? In traditional finance, the transmittal request, you're already going to know who your counterparty is because your customer is saying, I want to I want to send this wire transfer from Bank of America to Citibank. That's not an issue. But in crypto, you don't know automatically because you're using public ledgers. And so if your customer sends a qualifying transaction, you as the exchange that's the originator, you have to figure out who your customer is sending that information to and with a, a high level of certainty because you don't want to mess that up. And then secondly, after you've identified who your counterparty is, you have to find a secure way to send the actual travel information, which contains sensitive personal identifying information. So we designed a solution where members, and we have almost all of the leading exchanges and, and many medium and smaller exchanges, are able to use a, a system to, number one, identify who their customers are sending to, and then also a secure method to transmit that information. We have, I believe, over 80 or 85 members at this point, really high levels of coverage. I think it's a testament to when regulators say to the industry, we want you to solve this problem and giving enough leeway for the industry to actually deal with the compliance issue. I think it shows that the industry, particularly in crypto, we're more than willing to try to address any issues the government has. Uh, so I think this is a great example of exactly how that can be done. And you mentioned one of the other things that you deal with is uh, SAR filings. What are the kinds of issues that arise in SAR filing? Are they also the kind of issues that arise for SAR filings from any financial institution or other particular issues that you have to deal with in uh, cryptocurrency? In terms of the specific crypto type crime typologies, I really don't think they're fundamentally different than traditional finance. You have all of the different types of fraud typologies, some of which use crypto, just like they use fiat currency, um, they use prepaid debit cards, they use gift cards. You know, none of that is different. You know, there's a lot of talk about pig butchering now, which really is just a new version of a romance scam combined with different financial scams. You know, they use crypto at times, just like they use traditional finance. You have uh, the various types of money laundering on the narcotics side. I think dark web is one thing that's more specific to crypto because crypto is the type of payment that is accepted on dark web marketplaces. I was in the first group of prosecutors who kind of focused on dark web marketplaces. I was involved in the takedown of Alpha Bay, which at the time was the largest dark web marketplace. So that's one typology that I would say is probably unique to crypto compliance is ensuring that our customers are not engaging in transactions that are associated with dark web activity. But in general, I, I don't think the fundamental typologies are different. Kind of a very long-winded answer to your question. That is interesting. And, you know, it also leads to this question about there has been so much said about blockchain forensics and how kind of amazing they are. And it's often the assertion of the industry, of cryptocurrency industry, that, uh, you know, there's actually better transparency than there is with cash, certainly. And that seems true. But, I, you know, I, I did want to ask you, what are the issues that arise with mixers and tumblers? Are those things that just, you know, Coinbase doesn't really want to deal with transactions that come from mixers and tumblers? What are the obstacles to transparency that you have to deal with? So at a high level, one the way that I think about it 
if I were a policymaker, how I would think about it is I would rather have a, you know, an airplane with a parachute attached to it than one without it. You can criticize how effective the parachute is, but I'd rather have that parachute. And that's how I view blockchain analytics. Obviously, there are limitations to it at times, but it's much better than what traditional finance has. So at a high level, that's kind of where, where I would view crypto compliance. Um, and I don't think that gets said enough. I think there's a lot of pot shot. There's a lot of cheap shots that are taken at crypto by people who don't understand how crypto compliance actually works and the huge benefits that blockchain provides. That could be cynical attacks, or maybe people are just ignorant about how effective the technology is. But nonetheless, like we have that parachute that traditional finance doesn't have. Now, in terms of different ways that transactions can be obfuscated on the blockchain, there is nothing illegitimate inherently about someone wanting privacy when they're transacting in crypto. The advantage to crypto is also the disadvantage in that you have this huge amounts of transparency, but that can impact an individual's privacy, which when transacting on a private ledger with traditional finance, you essentially have 100% privacy from the public, except your financial institution knows what you're doing. With blockchain, the public can also see potentially see what you're doing. So we have to view obfuscation and privacy technology not just as a bad thing, but also as an important service. And I think if you look at academic analyses of obfuscating technology, or even regulators have noted that the privacy component is legitimate and important. Uh, nonetheless, it can be abused. I would say that you know there's always a cat and mouse game with technology where criminals will use it to their advantage and then the good guys, whether it's the government or compliance organizations or whoever who's trying to fight criminal activity, they may be a step behind at times or maybe they're a step ahead. I would say that our blockchain analytics keep getting better and better. You know, we have a very healthy ecosystem of maybe a half a dozen big companies and then a dozen or so more smaller analytics companies that are all offering their unique perspectives and heuristics and tools. And so that competition is really good. And I think it's a thriving market. So with mixers and tumblers specifically, that's kind of very primitive technology that I think is easily overcome with blockchain analytics. You know, then there's the question of privacy coins, uh, which potentially offer less transparency. Now, I would say that when I was in the government, there was a lot of concern about whether or not the Monero type coins of the world would take over and we would lose these advantages. Factually, that has not happened. Uh, you know, the, the public transparent blockchains are still king, kings of the ecosystem by far. Monero is used on the dark web, definitely, but it is not, in my view, risen to the level of, of really affecting our overall ability to see where activity is taking place and bad activity is taking place. And, and the other thing is that each exchange can decide what type of assets that they want to service. So, you know, each exchange can determine, is this coin, you know, it offers privacy features or this service offers privacy features? Do we have enough visibility to be able to take a risk-based approach to make sure that we are able to determine that the activity is legitimate and not suspicious or illegitimate? So it's not even an either or question. I think you can tailor it based on the specific risks of the different privacy technologies. It's interesting. You mentioned uh, there's a number of blockchain forensic firms out there and analytic firms out there. And uh, I, I was kind of surprised I had not understood this. Um, I was had a recent conversation with someone who was at one of the crypto exchanges 
who said, you know, it's just a tremendous admiration for what's being accomplished by the blockchain forensic services. At the same time said they had decided that they needed to sort of have all of them because everybody apparently has a different technique and the transactions they're looking at. We know that some of the really big ones revise the numbers that they come out with each year and six months later or something, that having full, as much transparency as possible involved having a number of different providers of blockchain forensics and ways to look at it, I guess. I, I don't know if there's any insight you have into that, but that was just news to me. I didn't understand. Yeah, I think a lot of exchanges take a belt and suspenders approach because the different analytics firms do offer different features. Some of them have been around longer. They may have larger historical data sets that are useful. There are maybe newer companies that offer different heuristics or technologies that give greater detail as to the source of transactions, for example. Some offer cross-chain analytics. So I, I think a lot of exchanges are taking a belt and suspenders approach to having several, several different options. And you know, the only downside is the cost associated with you have a different vendors. <laughs> so, but I think that's right. I think that is the norm to use multiple analytics providers. So you talked a little bit about typologies, and I'm going to press you a little bit more on this question in terms of, you know, we are seeing a rise, and I'm not sure that it's it's not, I won't write it off just to inflation, but uh, the familiarity of blockchain products and crypto, there is a rise in the amount of crypto being used for criminal purposes. And, and again, I'm not really sure that it necessarily in any way obliterates what's happening in the cash and, and other you know vehicles. But can you talk about that? Where are the concerns you're looking for? I mean, recently there's been some publicity and it, it doesn't seem like a huge amount, but it's a concern, publicity around uh, Hamas using crypto to get some funding and everything. What are the areas that keep you awake at night? Yeah, those are all a very interesting subtopic. So on the issue of terror financing and crypto, I think the actions of Hamas speak for themselves, which is they stopped crowdfunding with Bitcoin several months before the horrific attack in October because of the transparency of Bitcoin. Uh, so they themselves found it ineffective. I think that speaks for itself. Uh, I think terrorist organizations, just like other criminal groups and other bad actors, they're going to use whatever technologies they can possibly use to benefit themselves. Crypto is extraordinarily useful for everyone. So there's no surprise that criminals would attempt to use it. I think what we found, though, is that it backfires for criminals because of the intelligence and, and analytics that crypto offers. There was a book that the technology journalist Andy Greenberg wrote. You know, the fundamental thesis of that book is that Bitcoin was initially viewed as a panacea for criminals, and it turned out to be the opposite, which is once law enforcement broke the code, so to speak, and figured out how to handle these cases, it backfired on the criminals. And I experienced that personally. For us, it was like shooting fish in a barrel when we were doing dark web cases because there was this whole forensic record available, and all we had to do was tie one little piece of attribution to that historical flow of funds and we would be able to prosecute an individual. So I think it's the same with terror financing in that there just really hasn't been that much. And on top of that, I think if you look, let's just talk about OFAC specifically. The really cool thing with crypto is that OFAC can designate specific transactions, right? They can designate actual addresses on blockchains. That's simply not possible in traditional finance. If you look at the OFAC list for, for traditional finance, it's names and addresses right? That's who's on the SDN list. 
But over the last few years, OFAC has said, no, now you're not allowed as a financial institution or US person to transact with this address. And the nice thing with blockchain analytics, exchanges like us, we can build out much larger numbers of addresses that are higher risk because of their forensic association with SDN listed wallet addresses. So if OFAC, let's say, has five or 600 designated addresses, we can build out thousands based on those ground truth addresses. That's just a huge advantage. I think the one other area that law enforcement and regulators focus on is North Korea, DPRK. When you look at what DPRK has done, I think there's a, an analytical mistake that people are making when they blame crypto, which is that DPRK has done an, an effective job of hacking certain types of crypto services, like what we call bridges, and they've been able to steal a decent amount of money. That is a fundamentally a crypto security problem, not a crypto money laundering problem. When you look at what the actual money laundering is that happens after DPRK hacks a certain crypto product or service, it goes to an offshore exchange and then it goes to a Chinese bank where it is then laundered and brought back to North Korea. So that's a 100% traditional finance money laundering typology. And it's not happening on regulated U.S. exchanges. It's happening on the exchanges that are outside of the U.S.'s reach or playing jurisdictional arbitrage to avoid the U.S.'s jurisdiction. So in my view, to address DPRK, we need to have deal with the security issues that are allowing DPRK to hack certain products and services, deal with the offshore exchanges that are processing these transactions, and deal with the Chinese banks that are then converting it to fiat, which is ultimately what benefits DPRK. So that's another example in the counterterrorism and, and national security space that I think the fundamental premises of how people are talking about it, I think is flawed because they haven't really dug into what the core problem is. They just want to blame crypto. So that's my view on kind of how things have happened on, on that side. Uh, I'll stop there. I don't want to go on and on. There's a lot to say. So I wanted to challenge you a little bit. The interview that I did for the podcast series just before this one with Zeke Fox, whose skepticism about crypto is great. We'll leave it at that. That's an understatement. You talked about how exciting it was to be part of the world that is Coinbase because of the advantages around cryptocurrency. And I don't know if you want to touch at this point on some of the DeFi things and where a Coinbase comes in with DeFi product. What are those advantages? There are people that would certainly argue that crypto has not yet lived up to what it was often proposed it would do. And, and I can run through that list. You're saying you think there's some real benefits to it. And, and let's talk about those. Yeah, definitely. So because crypto has developed so quickly, you know, I think it turned 15 uh, this year, the critics have also moved more quickly than with the development of the internet, for example. I think anyone could have taken cheap shots at the development of the internet throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then the 90s, and then the dot-com crash, and said, this technology is just not living up to what we think it is. Well, within 15 years, whereas the internet took maybe 50 years, going back to the initial systems that were developed by the US government and certain colleges or universities in the 50s, cryptos moved really quickly. When you zoom out, and you see how new the technology is. I would say that there's a whole host of areas that crypto is very interesting and offers solutions for. But I think 
the one that I really look at is is on the financial services side. So both payments and, and stores of value. And I think Bitcoin just in particular, which does not offer smart contract functions, but is just solely, you know, a currency or payment application on top of a blockchain has definitely proved its value. And I don't think the recent e spot Bitcoin ETF offerings, I think they speak for themselves. If these massive financial institutions are saying that this is a product that they're interested in, you know, someone who writes a book or is critical of Bitcoin, that's great. But where people put their money shows where something is valuable. You know, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on that, but I think just zooming out and looking back 15 years ago, when I first was involved in crypto in 2013, 2014, we were shocked when Bitcoin got over $15, you know, and we laughed when it was over $100. And we lose that perspective, I think. But clearly, it's a serious financial product, serious financial service. And then that's not even talking about smart contracts. And that's where I think there's going to be a huge revolution in how we live our lives. And that's with Ethereum type blockchains where you can have a huge amount of products and services that are built on chain, as we call it, as opposed to having an intermediary. And really, uh, lots of public welfare, I think, that can come from this, like ensuring that government contracting is, is secure, allowing for property rights in the third world where you have weak or corrupt judiciary systems, remittances, which we all know the take rate is just atrocious in traditional finance. And it's slow. And even for people who don't need to use remittances, the way that wire transfers work are so slow and clunky. And I think we have all of these products and services that are still really in their formative stages. You know, someone can write a book and criticize that, but they're not building anything, right? They're critics. And that's fine. I think it's important for there to be critics. But one thing I've appreciated being in the industry side for the last three years is that it's a lot harder to build things than to tear things down. And from a compliance perspective, I really like the approach that FinCEN takes, which is that regulators need to be technology neutral. You know, they should not be picking winners and losers. Rather, they need to take a risk-based approach to ensure that whatever services and products are coming from a certain industry, that there are reasonable controls in place to make sure that it's not the Wild West. But I think often people want the government to pick winners and losers. I think FinCEN and the approach that certain parts of the federal government take are, is really healthy. And so it's not our job on the compliance and legal side to say that X, Y, or Z shouldn't exist, but rather, are they taking the proper steps to ensure that the risk-based approach can be met? Well, that's a good place to end, I think, too, that you, you, have, uh, you can walk away having praised FinCEN, defended the industry, and looking forward to an even brighter day for uh, the DeFi products that are out there. Grant, thank you so much for spending time here today. Thanks, Karen. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Coinbase's Director of Financial Crime Legal, Grant Rabin. I hope you found the podcast compelling and that you will subscribe to Financial Crime Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud so that you'll receive an alert for each new podcast. Because Financial Crime Matters to me and to you. See you next time.